Welcome back to the Euro Trips podcast. Um, once again, we are here for another one of our guest interviews. We had Richard Graves last time for our second instalment of the guest interviews. I've got a very special guest. Anyone who watches the NFL and Sky Sports will know exactly who he is. He is one of the faces of NFL UK. It is Jeff Reinbold. Um, I had a chat with him about his coaching career, about his childhood growing up and the NFL draft that is taking place on Thursday night. Uh, really good chat with him, someone I've watched for years. Uh, it was really good to hear about his view on coaching from that, from the coaching side of the point, and just overall his views on American football in total. So let's get into it. Hello and welcome to the Euro Trips podcast and the second instalment of our guest interviews. This episode is once again someone best known for their work around American football and Sky Sports. I am with Sky Sports and CFL coach, currently the special teams coach for the Montreal Alouettes, Jeff Reinbold. First of all, Jeff, how are you? I'm outstanding, Andy. How are you doing? Yeah, yeah, not bad. I'm very excited for the drafts um, tomorrow night. Uh, very excited to see who gets taken over wall number one. I think this is the first year, probably since 2018, where we're not sure who's getting the one overall pick. I mean, we had Kyler Murray, Joe Burrow, Trevor Lawrence. They were pretty much the expected number one overall pick. Well, I think this year we got a real good draft where not so much quarterbacks, we've got a good draft where no one can predict who's getting number one overall. So I'm very excited to see how that's going to go. Um, and you're currently in Vegas, aren't you, at the moment for the draft. Um, what's the atmosphere like in Vegas at the moment? Well, they, they anticipate 750,000 people are going to descend on Vegas for the draft. Um, it is a, it, you know, the NFL doesn't just, have the draft they have an event and this morning we were on the field with a number of the guys that are they don't have everybody who's a potential first rounder but a, a number of them like 16 or 18 of them are here in vegas and they put a kids clinic on where the players went out and worked with young kids and then we had an opportunity our first opportunity to meet with them one-on-one -on -one and, and do interviews and it was really interesting I, tremendous group of kids Garrett Wilson from Ohio State probably the best receiver in the draft uh, Aiden Hutchinson who may go first in the draft there's a lot of speculation about that Itkan McQuanwu the great offensive tackle from NC State Malik Willis the quarterback from Liberty um, Kayvon Thibodeau who's been a you know a lightning rod all through the draft process and what was really cool Andy was I found each of them to be humble good guys, well-spoken, um, you know, again, now we'll see if they can keep that kind of humility when they get, you know, with their name called on, on Thursday night <laughs> and all of a sudden they're instant millionaires, but uh, you know, they, they all seem like really good kids. Yeah. And we will get onto those draft questions later on in the podcast as well. I've got some questions for you about the draft itself and who's getting taken, etc. cetera. Um, but my first question is always something I like to ask every guest um, if you had to have a dinner, a dinner party with three guests, dead or alive, who are they and why? Wow. I mean, that's say you're covering a lot of ground. Um, you know, I, I would certainly invite Coach Vermeil. Um, he has been probably the next to my father, the biggest male influence in my life. Uh, tremendous, tremendous person and, and a tremendous football coach. Obviously, a Hall of Famer, just, you know, go into the Hall of Fame this year. Um, you know, I'd like to bring back my dad, <laughs> uh, and you know, I'm the third one, boy, it'd be a tough one. I, I don't know. Uh, you know, maybe Woody Hayes, 
So <laughs> I, I think I think it'd be a it'd be a lot of competition for that third seat. Let me just say that. Yeah, I'll have to tell you, our first guest on the podcast was Richard Graves, and he chose you for his dinner party, so um, that was quite nice. Well, that I tell you what, I take that as a, a tremendous compliment. You know, it was a little sad today because, um, you know, Richard, you know, and I have worked together at Sky Sports for a long time, and he's gone off now, and he's on his own, and he's doing great with his own project, but the Super Bowl and these big NFL events were always better when Richard was around. He is really a class guy. And, you know, I, we had him on, uh, on my, on my podcast the other day, we have the people's draft and we made him the general manager of the Cowboys. Cause he's a died in a wool cowboy fan now and uh, let him make the first selection for the Cowboys. I won't tell you who he picked, but you got to go to my podcast to find it. Yeah. I will check that out. Definitely. Um, so I want to go back to your sort of early years, Jeff. Um, so I've done some research and I can see you grew up in Saskatchewan. Um, so when you did grow up, was it always football for you growing up? Was that always a sport you sort of aimed to sort of have a career in? Well, you know what? The thing about my growing up was really based on my father. Um, my father was in, he was a coach and was in professional baseball for a number of years. So we bounced everywhere. I mean, we lived in Coos Bay, Oregon, Bay City, Michigan, South Bend, Indiana, you know, Bradenton, Florida, I mean, all over the place. And uh, when I got to be a high school age kid, my mother said, we had five children. My mother said, you can chase that baseball thing all you want to my dad, but we're going to, we're going to raise these kids in one so that they have some continuity. And her parents lived in South Bend. So that's where I went to high school. And, um, but I was, it was a great way to grow up, particularly for me because of what I do now. But what you found out at a real early age um, was that, you know, things like color and language and religion and all of those things really are secondary. And, you know, when you're, in, when you're on a team or when you're traveling as a team, which baseball, you know, I can remember being, I think it was 10 years old, maybe, uh, maybe not even that old. And, you know, we're the Coos Bay North Bend A's, you know, farm team of the Oakland A's. And we're we're traveling eight hour bus rides, you know, to play a game. And you've got kids from all over America and Latin America. And, you know, some don't speak English, black kids, white kids, Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, Haitians. But they were all baseball players. And what you found out was that all of the stuff you know, like skin color and where you were raised and how much money your dad had or no, no, no those things were always just kind of secondary things to the person that was inside. So it was really, really a great way to grow up. And because we bounced around so much, it really forced us as kids to be, to be able to adapt to, you know, to go to a new school and you not know anybody and be able to survive. And um, there's not too many people in the world that I can't have a conversation with because I've been so lucky because of coaching to be so many places. And I've heard you, you've mentioned the Detroit Lions, you've mentioned the Raiders. Um, who was your team growing up? The Lions were my first team, Andy, and I'll tell you why. And this is a great lesson for, for sports teams to understand. I'm, 
probably at that age six, I would guess uh, at that time. And, you know, I was just beginning to fall in love with football. And so I'd watched the game on TV with my dad and I said to him "Dad, I want to get some autographs from some players. And because I had seen baseball players sign an autograph since I was, you know, born, but I had no connection to football. And so my dad came back a couple of days later and he handed me a book and it was basically the address of every NFL team. And, you know, he, he said, gave me a stack of envelopes and some paper and a pen. And he said, write all those teams and ask them if it's possible for you to get, you know, and I'm going to tell you something, the lions were the first team that answered and they had, I mean, I, I could still remember it the pictures of, you know, Alex Karras and Mel Farr and, and, you know, Dick LeBeau and all, you know, and then there were these, these, they weren't plastic at that point, but they were like cloth stickers, lion stickers that, you know, there must've been 10 of them in there and a a press guide and a, a handwritten note. And I mean to tell you, it made such an incredible impression on me that for years then I was a Lions fan and then when I got into when I got to be about high school I think it was now I was a really big football fan and my I remember watching the Raiders and they had this receiver named Fred Bolitnikoff and Freddie had you know blonde hair sticking out of his helmet and he had stick them all over him and he had one bar face mask and you know, had a lamp, you know, what they call lamp black underneath his eyes. And he had like, like a scraggly and like, he was the coolest dude in the world to me. Like, I mean, he was like beyond cool. So that was the start of my Raiders, you know, love for the Raiders. And what's amazing is I ended up late in later years, had an opportunity to coach against Freddie in pro football. And, you know, I remember going over and talking to him before the game and I'm, you know, I'm probably, I would guess, 15 years younger than Fred. And, you know, as, I was just as excited as a as a 35-year-old man as I was as a 15-year-old kid to have an opportunity to shake his hand. The only thing that was crazy about shaking his hand, I kind of half expected there'd be stick all over it, but there was no stick <laughs> Um, So I obviously go for going further on into your career, you initially played, I can see, defensive back for the main Black yeah. Bears. Yeah. Before becoming the offensive graduate assistant coach for the Western Montana College around the age of 24. Um, so what made you decide to go into coaching at that young age? Excuse me. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I went to Maine as a receiver. I got a hurt. I hurt my knee <clears throat> and they moved me over to defense. And I think I probably had a, more of a defensive personality. And I played for a great guy. I mean, not a good guy, a great guy. And my college football experience was phenomenal. I couldn't ask for better people. And I remember my senior year, and I was hurt again. I had ruptured a bicep in my biceps tendon in my arm. And they let me play. Um, but I had to go into the head coach's office, you know, to, and, you know, in, I had to sign this waiver and because <clears throat> I had the ruptured bicep and he looked up at the, over the desk and he said, what are you going to do when this is over? And I was like, huh? 
over? What do you mean over? Like, you know, I was so clueless. I, I you know, you think you're going to play forever. You think you're going to go right from college to the pros. And, and I wasn't, you know, at that point I was so beat up that, you know, I didn't realize that that was the last football I was going to play. I think there were like six weeks left in the season. And he, and he said, you know, Jeff, you've probably got six weeks of football left in your body. And, you know, you've got to do something when you're done with this. But I think he said, I think you should coach. Right. And so I went home that night and I remember calling my dad and I, I said, dad, I think I want to coach. And Andy, I'm telling you, there was like 30 seconds of silence on the phone. And all of a sudden he goes, oh, you do, do you? And I went, yes, sir. And he goes, well, think about these things. There's no security. You tra- you're going to be traveling all the time. There's no money in it. Um, you know, and he goes through all these things. Why not? Right. <laughs> and, I, and later on, I realized what he was doing. He was testing me to see whether I really wanted to do it or not. Because this business is a high performance industry. It's a high stress in, environment. It's, you know, it's, it destroys guys. It can, it can. And he, he knew that you don't go into the business unless you're all in. And he wanted to make sure I was all in before he, you know, gave me his blessing. Yeah. And also you've had plenty of roles since. I mean, your first coaching role came in 1991 as a special teams and receiver coach for the BC Lions, um, which has been a, the main trend of your coaching career is in special teams. I mean, you've recently moved to the uh, Montreal Alouettes after many years with the Hamilton Tiger Cats. When you change teams, how would you describe the process of changing teams in coaching? Because I saw Sam Donald talking about it on a podcast recently where he moved from New York to Carolina and it seemed a very quick process. So is it the same for coaching in the CFL? Is it quick, literally within a day of already moving to the next place? Well, I, I think, you know, like for, for me and my, my situation is really unique because I am allowed to do both coaching and media, which is very, very rare. Usually you don't get a job in media until you're done coaching and you, you, you know, um, you would have a hard time finding organizations that will allow you to, to have the freedom that I have. Like right now, I'm in Las Vegas covering the NFL draft, but I'm still getting paid by the, uh, by the Alouettes. That's a phenomenal situation. Um, I think what has happened is that in coaching, there is, um, and this is a problem sometimes for young players, because language is so different from organization to organization. You may have a 15-yard out route, maybe called, uh, you know, a dropout. It may be called a speed. It may be, you know, it could, it could be titled six different ways by, you know, six different teams. And so there's always that process of getting on the same page language-wise. I'm, a, I'm really fortunate in that basically I have my own gig, right? As a, I have all the special teams. I'm the only one that does it. I run to me, I, all of it, right? So I don't have to, and my, you know, my wife says it's because I don't play well with others, but the reality of it is it's just, I know what I want to do. I know how to get it done. I know the steps. I know the process. And then you just jump in and do it. What the toughest thing is, when you put a staff together 
you're talking about 13, 14, 20 guys sometimes. It's, it takes time for everybody to kind of get to know everybody. You know, you bump into each other an awful lot along the, along the path. And, you know, but that's kind of exciting too, because you always learn things from guys. You're always, you're watching, like, for example, when I'm not doing something on the field relative to the special teams, I'll watch the offensive and defensive coaches because I may see a technique or a idea or an approach that somebody's using that I can incorporate into what we do. Cause the bottom line is, you know, it's, it's all about helping the players get better and, you know, we can all improve and we can all, you know, refine our game all the time. And in your career as well, you, you, you talk about coaching there. You had a couple of spells as a head coach in both college uh-huh. and CFL. Um, I think you're probably not the first person to say probably didn't go as to plan maybe your head coaching career. So when you see head coaches in the NFL, for example, lose their jobs at the end of the year, does this give you more sympathy, the fact that you've been in their position? Does this give you more sympathy than, say, that the regular fan that watches the game in their local bar? I think I think maybe, but I tell you what, you learn real fast in this business. And there's a great quote by the late great Bum Phillips. He said, "There's two kinds of coaches: those that's been fired, and them that's gonna get fired." Right? <laughs> and so you, you can't take it personally, right? There's so many factors that are involved. Now, in my case, you know, as a college head coach, we we did, uh, you know really outstanding for the first, you know, I was only there one year and that was my only previous head coaching experience. Then I get a job in pro football. Well, there's only 32 of those in the NFL and, and nine in Canada. And so you're, you're talking about 41 jobs in the world like that. Right. And I was probably in my mid thirties, I think when I got my opportunity and I wasn't ready for that job. Right. It was a tough situation. There were a lot of things that I didn't know going into it. And I didn't have enough experience yet in as a coach. And I and I wasn't instinctive enough about situations. I we all become products of what we were, right? And as a player, I went through the transition of coming out of high school as one of the best high school football players in in my state and going and playing as a freshman. And it's all too easy. Right. Right. You just, and then you get hurt and then you get hurt again. I'm talking about surgical things. And so all of a sudden your skills, the things that you used to be able to do, you can't do anymore. And now to get on the field, you've got to do everything right. And you've got to be 100% locked in and you've got to be, and I was always that type a kid anyway. Right. So then I go into coaching and my answer to everything is just outwork it. Right. Just I'm just going to work. I'm going to work harder than anybody. Yeah, I know we lost five offensive linemen, you know, three to retirement, two went to the NFL. So we lost all five of our starting offensive linemen. I know our quarterback got in trouble and couldn't get back into the country. I know, but I said, I'm going to, that's okay. I'm just going to, I'll work, I'll outwork it. And you find out at some point, doesn't, that doesn't happen, right? Hard work is just the price of admission. You better have talented players and you better have 
an organization that will hang in there with you for the long term. Right. And, you know, I, I just, I was young. I wanted to be a head coach and I took the first job I had a chance to take. And so I don't, you know, it was painful at first. And this, this is where I gained empathy for guys that I know are in trouble. Like there's guys in the national football league, Matt rule in Carolina. It's he's, he's got his back against the wall. You know, there's, you know, watching Matt Nagy go through it in Chicago. You know, I, I understand what they're going through. I went through it myself. The thing that you empathize with the most, and this is hard for fans to understand is that when you are the boss, when you're the head coach, you've got probably 25 families that are dependent on you because you get fired. They get fired, you know, by proxy. And now they may get rehired, but they don't, they just come in and they say, boom, 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 boom. You're all gone. Right. Well, so not only do you, do you quote fail for yourself and your family, there's 25 other families that are going to have to relocate, find a new job. Kids are going to have to find new schools. Um, you know, it, it's a tough situation. Yeah, it really is. And obviously, Myself, I can't speak from personal experience, but I, I can imagine the pressure's there. You probably get in, get in football, you get it in a lot of sports where there's pressure on players and then there's extra pressure on the coaches because they're normally the first ones to go. Normally the players get leeway compared to the coaches. And I think it's definitely a, a harder task as a coach than it is a player. Um, now, players you've coached, you, meant, you have coached people like Emmanuel Sanders. So how good was it to see when someone like him went into the NFL and done what he's done since joining the league. The greatest thrill I've ever had in coaching is to watch guys have that confetti fall on them and know that, you know, that they are in the 1% of all the players who ever played, right? all the players who ever played much less all the fans and all the people in the world, they are the 1% that for one moment could say they were world champions. Right. I mean, that is a very special, special class. And when I watched it happen to Sebastian Vollmer and Emmanuel Sanders and, you know, guys that you're talking about kids that I coach, I mean, I, like it was almost surreal to me to think um, I saw Sebastian Vollmer play a football game at 16 years old and he was 6'4", 205 pounds and didn't know, could hardly speak English. And then I'm watching him at, Six six three hundred and thirty pounds, protecting Tom Brady in the Super Bowl, and I mean, like, oh my gosh, think about that, right? Was that not an unbelievable thrill? And it breaks your heart when you see Aldrick Robinson, for example, who's a receiver was with the Falcons, and a really good young receiver, twenty points up in the fourth quarter. He's less than 15 minutes away from 
being able to be part of that 1% and the Patriots steal it from him, right? I mean, they didn't steal it from him, but you know, you know what I'm saying? And, and you know, watching, even though Emmanuel had won a Super Bowl with Denver and, you know, you watch uh, him on a post route with like a minute and 15 seconds left to go in a game and he beats bracket coverage and Jimmy G delivers a ball three feet too far. Or he's this, he wins his second Super Bowl and is a Super Bowl hero that they'll talk about forever in San Francisco. I mean, so you, you understand the highs and the lows of it, right? And that's what makes it so much fun. It's the interaction. Like I went out today and I talked to Malik Willis and I talked to Aiden Hutchinson and I talked to, you know, Equan Wu and I, and I talked to Kayvon Thibodeau and, you know, and I'm standing there talking to those guys and they kind of get it, but they don't really get it that tomorrow night after, you know, at one 30 in the morning, in the UK, their lives are going to be irreparably changed and not just their lives, their, their children's lives and their children's children's lives, because that's the kind of wealth those guys are going to fall into 24 hours from right now. I mean, it's phenomenal. I mean, yeah, that's the kind of stuff that makes sport incredible right yeah 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 so, and i think i think as well it's that thing of like you get your i'm sure dan marina will tell you all that it's not a guarantee of going back there to but once you get into it one time you get to the big game there's no guarantee you'll be there again and i think that to get there in the first place after being a small percentage of people from college and high school that get to the nfl to then get to the game itself and then win it you really are in that small percentage of of people who can do it so i think there was a fine line between look at the Tennessee Titans Rams game where it was the I think it was Kevin Dyson the one yard away. Look yeah. at the Jimmy Tree overthrow. Uh, the Bengals almost won it last year. I mean, there's such fine margins in a lot of these games, and you are that tiny bit close between either winning it and becoming a hero forever in a certain city, or being forgotten about or well, not forgotten about, but sort of not having that thing you always desired. Well, you just hit on something that I think is really phenomenal. And I didn't, I've never even thought about it, Andy. So thank you very much. Dick Vermeil, like I said, is my guy, right? He goes to the Super Bowl. He takes Philadelphia to the Super Bowl. They get pounded by the Raiders. He takes the Rams back, right? And, you know, Kevin Dyson is a yard short of scoring to beat him on the last play of the game. And if Dyson scores, Dick Vermeil never wins a Super Bowl and maybe never never gets in the Hall of Fame. That's how incredible mm-hmm. one yard can be. And you you know there's a tremendous movie called Any Given Sunday about the NFL, right? And it's obviously it's Hollywood and there's some it's dramatized, but there's some really good stuff in it. And there's a scene where Al Pacino, who plays the coach, talks about the inches, the inches that it takes. 
Well, there were 36 inches between being a legend and being just another guy that didn't finish. You know, that's, that's, that's what happens. Like, for example, I have never won a great cup championship. I've been in four of them and haven't won one last year. We go down the field, right? And on the last play of regulation, we're throwing the ball in the end zone and the quarterback leaves it about six inches behind the receiver or we, we win the game, right? Game goes to overtime. We lose by a field goal, right? right. That's, that's how, that's how small the, the differences are. That's how, you know, you, you can't, it's almost like, and I hate to say this, but as a fan, you really can't appreciate it because you can't know the amount of work that's gone into it to get there. Right. I mean, everybody in pro football works their ass off and I'm talking to everybody from the trainers to the equipment guys, to the players, to the coaches, to the personnel guy, everybody. Right. And only one team gets to be champion. Right. It's crazy, isn't it? It's absolutely mad. Like that's just such, yeah. So many teams at the end of the season, just completely without anything really. It's just. Yeah. And, and think about it like this. There's no, in the national football league, there's no champions league, right? There's no uh, FA cup. I mean, you either win the Super Bowl or you don't. Right? As great as the Cincinnati Bengals year was, they didn't win the last one. There's only one team wins the last game of the year. That means all 31 others go back and say, we got we to gotta do better. We got to get better. We got to find a way to win. Now, think about that. Think about the pressure that comes with that. Think about, you know, all of the and, and what's what's even more incredible, Andy, is let's say you're in, I don't know, some financial business or whatever, right? You know, you get your report quarterly and your year ends, right? With us, we got 17 final examinations, and you better pass. And you you know what? You're being put out in front of millions of people and they're going to watch you either win or lose, succeed or fail. And so if you can't handle that emotionally, the game will, the, the game will eat you up. It'll eat you alive. Um, and there are coaches that I know that, you know, that I, I had one guy that I worked with. I won't use his name, but I have one guy I worked with. He hated game day. Really? Hated it. Hated it. Threw up. Wow. I mean, I mean and he used to he used to call he used to call the game three hours of gut-wrenching hell. He loved practice. He loved football. He loved teaching. But the game? 
three hours of gut-wrenching hell. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to guess Adam Gase. <laughs> no, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you. But, you know, you know and, and I used to watch him. Like, it, it, he would, he would, like, he'd, it was his whole personality would change. Oh, oh, he used to go like that. Oh. <laughs> Oh, I, I definitely knew who that is. I'd love to know who it is. Um, our final quick questions for you, Jeff, is about the draft. Uh, I've yep. got three questions in relation to it. I do realise that this is obviously I've sprung it on you without any sort of previous sort of knowledge of what's it, what it's going to be. So That's first right. of all, who's going to go number one overall? I think there's a big, 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 big division right now about that. And I think it's gotten bigger in the last few days. And I talked to somebody very, very close to the decision. And there is concern about who to take because not because you think the other guy might be better or whatever. It's because you don't want to fail at the pick. Because when you take a guy in the first round, particularly with a first pick of the first round, and there's no, there's no Joe Burrow in this class, right? There's no, uh, you know, I'm trying to think who was another first player picked in the draft that was went on and just killed it. Um, there's no Lawrence Taylor in this draft, right? So, there's potential for any one of these guys who's being talked about for the first pick to be a bust. And as an organization that costs you an awful lot, right? It costs you that pick, the one you could have taken and a lot of money. So uh, there are organizations that don't want to pick first unless there's a clear winner. Right? So I would think right now, Jacksonville is actually, seeing if there's anybody that wants to, to trade back because they need multiple players, right? And so to trade down and get more picks would make sense. That all being said, in my mind, Aiden Hutchinson is the best guy in the draft. He's the cleanest prospect in the draft, right? Now, he's not without issue, right? But He's the clean, in my opinion, he's the cleanest prospect in the draft. He's got a great motor. He's extremely smart. He's a team guy. He's a great leader. He's all the things that Jacksonville needs, right? He'd play on the other side of Josh Allen. He'd have two good edge rushers, right? It makes a lot of sense. On the other hand, you could go Kayvon Thibodeau, but again, he's a different kind of kid. Right. Not saying he's a bad kid or anything like that at all. He's just a different kind of kid. I saw it when I talked to him today. He's an intellectual kid. He's not, you know, he gets a knack or is this knock for not loving football. I don't believe that's true in, at all, but he loves chess. He loves his foundation. He lo he's a different kid and you better go to, he better go to the right coach. Cause if you get an old school guy, that's, you know, you may not have a good marriage. Iquanu is a guy that would be a safe first round pick because you could try him at tackle. And if he can't play tackle, he'll go in and be a great guard for you for eight years in, in the franchise. 
if Hutchinson, for whatever reason, would fail, what are you going to do with it? Right? So that's the, that's the quandary right now. I think personally that Jacksonville needs to have the courage to say, you have to get to the quarterback in the National Football League today. You have to. You need to have pass rushers. They had the fewest sacks of anybody in the league last year. You've got a guy that's not only 6'7 and got all the measurables, he is a ultra-productive player on tape. So in my mind, no character flaws, no issues, take Aiden Hutchinson. And there's always one every year in the draft. We saw Aaron Rodgers happen to it years ago. Which player with the most potential do you see the most likely to sort of fall in the draft and get taken late in the first round or the second round? Would it be Thibodeau or anyone else you'd have in mind? I don't. Th- I think. I think Thibodeau is when you get around him, and it was really fun being around him today. I think you get a sense that there's been a lot of disinformation put out there. You know, and again, that's part of this process. Teams are going to teams are going to call or, you're, you know, the, all these guys like Schefter and all these guys, you know, how do they get their stories? Well, they get their stories because somebody wants to talk to them. And right now there's a lot of disinformation that's going around. Right. So he, that kid has been, you know, part of the reason that there's disinformation is if if you get enough of it out there, a guy can fall and he might just fall right to you and you don't have to, you don't have to move up to get it. Right. So it's a strategic ploy that's used. I don't think he's going to, I don't, I would be shocked if Thibodeau is not gone in the first five, you know? Uh, and I want to talk about that in a second too, because what happens a lot of times, Andy is, a run on a talent uh, on a pool will go right. So for example, if Hutchinson goes first, now you've got Thibodeau and you've got Johnson from Florida state that are great edge rushers. And you've got Walker who's not on tape, a great player, but he's a freak of nature. Physically. Some team will say, we're going to take him maybe even with the first pick because we'll coach him to be what we wanted that's dangerous because that is dangerous because in my opinion and this is only my opinion the thing that tells you more than anything else about a player is his film not his 40 time his film and here's a kid with elite level athletic skills that doesn't produce at a high level those guys get you fired yeah, I think you're totally right. Because I always have an issue with people going crazy over someone's combine or someone's pro day because you see a quarterback, you saw Zach Wilson last year made a great throw, but there was no pressure on him. The receiver, there was no receiver against defensive back. It was all just completely empty. So I always I, I try to ignore the combine and pro uh, day. I just watched that you, college tape maybe. Brilliant. Brilliant. Because today when I was talking to Malik Willis, right? I asked him that question about that throw in uh, in his pro day that everybody, the NFL packaged it, you know, replayed it, yada, yada, yada. And he goes, coach, I got to make that throw. There's nobody rushing me. I was (laughs) on air. 
right? Yeah. So he's sophisticated enough to understand that that's way overrated. When Walker runs four, five in the 40 on game day, something's wrong on defense. Because if that defensive lineman has to run 40 yards, somebody's either running for a touchdown <laughs> and he's got to chase him. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. He's not going to – He's not going to be asked to do that. It's a it's a test that has long it's lived way past its value. It was a test that was the first test standardized test for an athlete in football and it was done by Paul Brown in the 50s or 40s even. That they he's guys in his position don't do that. So why do you test it? I, it's it's ridiculous, but I don't get me started. <laughs> yeah, we all remember John Ross having the fastest forty, and then look what he's done in his NFL career. Not a lot. Um, final question, a bit of a fun question. Um, if you're in Canton, kick out one player in the Hall of Fame and add someone in who is who isn't in the Hall of Fame. Who are you kicking out and who are you putting in? Ooh, oh man, I don't. I I mean, I hope I don't have to kick anybody out. Because that's such <laughs> that's such an incredible honor. I know one guy that I would really like to see in there, and he's been on the ballot a number of times. And now I think for him to get in, he's going to get have to get in in that veterans category that they have. But Steve Tasker, who played for the Bills and was the greatest special teams player in the history of the National Football League, actually redefined the the position. The, the meaning of being a special teams player and his son, Luke played for me. And I've had an opportunity to get to know Steve real well. And Steve is a hall of fame person as well as a hall of fame player. And I really think it's a shame that the writers and the voters have, you know, don't have him in the net, you know, in the hall of fame. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, but that has been the podcast for this week. So thank you, Jeff, once again for coming on and giving us your time on a very busy week for you. It's my pleasure, man. I, I, you know, I enjoy doing it and I really enjoy your work and keep, keep doing it, Andy. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, so yeah, catch us next time for our next guest interview and we'll see you then. So take care. Aloha.